Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how to inform the public through a nonprofit journalism model and the importance of bringing journalists together and supporting them so they can serve their public and hold power to account. My guest is Dave Kaplan, Executive Director of the Global Investigative Journalism Network, or GIJN. GIJN supports investigative journalists around the world as they do the difficult and sometimes dangerous work of shining a light on issues that the public needs to know. Welcome, Dave. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what the Global Investigative Journalism Network is and does and, and why it's there. In the beginning, there were really three prototypes that, that started nonprofit investigative journalism. The original one was actually the Fund for Investigative Journalism, which still exists. It's based in Washington, D.C., and, and it began in 1969. Uh, and one of its first grants was to a young freelancer named Seymour Hirsch to investigate uh, a massacre in My Lai, Vietnam. And he, he, he ended up winning a Pulitzer for that. So it showed that, that this model of you know, what we call now micro-grants, micro-financing for investigative journalism had a, had a place. The second group was 1975, the uh, Investigative Reporters and Editors uh, group, which was a professional association. This is right after Watergate and muckrakers, American muckrakers felt a need to have their own association and it took off. The first big project they did was the Arizona project uh, exposing who killed uh, reporter Don Bowles in Arizona. That today is the largest professional association of investigative journalists, like 5,000 members. The third group was the Center for Investigative Reporting which was started by a bunch of freelancers in the Bay Area from a, a ramshackle office in, in downtown Oakland and then San Francisco, now, now in uh, Berkeley or Emeryville, CIR and now Reveal has really set the model. So these three groups, a financing mechanism, a professional association and a reporting center really formed the basis for everything that followed. There are now more than 200 of these nonprofits that, that are dedicated to either doing or, or training uh, on investigative journalism from uh, you know, ICIJ to ProPublica to uh, groups uh, all over Europe, uh, in Latin America, in Asia. So how did GIJN come into existence? In 2001, the head of IRE and his Danish counterpart uh, had been doing training in what was then called computer-assisted reporting. We now call it data journalism. And they were having a drink and said, uh, hey, next, next year, why don't we in, in, invite the world? And let's just see who comes. So they sent out invitations to all these groups that, that uh, were, were working on investigative journalism and had I-teams and, and were experimenting with, with data and, and new ways to process documents. We had no idea if anybody would come. 300 journalists from 30 countries came to Copenhagen uh, in what had the, the feeling of a religious revival. Uh, people discovered that they, they weren't alone, that they had the same problems. They couldn't get uh, access to documents and data, to sources. Uh, the officials were stonewalling them. Corporations were unaccountable. Uh, and the, the, you know, it turned out the bad guys had gone international a long time ago. 
globalization had made everything electronic and easy to, to move around. The Cold War had taken down borders, uh, cell phones and, and the internet were, were changing everything. And journalism globally was still way back here. And, and what happened was the global conference electrified these networks that were ready to come together. And the thing just took off. Uh, 2011, we were getting so many requests for, for help around the world. Um, and there was no institutional capacity. We basically fell to a different group every two years to reinvent the conference. There was no um, funding base. There, there was no staff. So I said, we, we need to form a nonprofit. I basically worked without pay for a year. And we were very passionate about this. Uh, we, we talked about creating a, a global hub for the world's investigative journalists. One just didn't exist. The health writers, science writers, uh, the, the guild journalists, they, they all had associations. But the journalists who took, I think, you know, a lot of the biggest risks, who used the most advanced tools, who went after the, the toughest stories, uh, were kind of loners. And there was no association to, to back them up, to, to train a new generation, uh, to kind of codify the, the methodologies that people were using, particularly at a time when technology was changing so fast and data journalism was coming into its own. So it suddenly took off. I mean, we, we knew it was uh, the right idea at the right time, but even we were surprised at how quickly it grew. We, we, we doubled in size year after year. And I've got 27 staff in 14 countries where we're in nine languages a day uh, and putting out a, a steady stream of the latest tips and tools and technology to uh, journalists everywhere. We, we have a help desk that has responded to 1,900 requests for assistance this year. And we've got 300,000 followers in social media in those nine languages. And we're, and we're still expanding. We're going to double the number of languages next year. It's very gratifying, I think, to the group of us who you know, knew there was a need and then really saw this, this takeoff. And, and now investigative journalism has really come into its, its own. We're, we're everywhere. One of the reasons there are so many attacks on journalists today is we're asking tougher questions with better tools in more places than ever before and and and, and have really put uh the, the issues of accountability and transparency uh, and abuses of power on, on the global agenda when i look back uh i've been fortunate to have a, a really exciting career but when i look back you know this will be probably my signature um uh, deed for for journalism, I think. You said bringing investigative journalists together from around the world for the first time was like a religious revival. And I, I think a lot of journalists feel that way about their careers. What drives an investigative journalist to bring this accountability and transparency and, and, and hold leaders accountable? People who specifically go into investigative journalism, accountability journalism, um, what what is it about that that gives this sort of religious revival experience or this experience of um, of fighting so much in the face of threats and danger and death and all of that? It's more than a profession. It's, it's a calling. There are elements of idealism and outrage. The practice has always been rooted in 
uh, social reform. I mean, you go back to the original muckrakers of over 100 years ago. I was during the progressive era uh, when people like Lincoln Steffens and, and Ida Tarbell were going after uh, the, the, the biggest forces for abuse of power in their day. You know, Ida Tarbell wrote about the Standard Oil Company. That is the, the you know, Google and Microsoft of today. It was the most powerful company of its time. Uh, you know, Steffens went after big city corruption and the meatpacking industry. You know, Nellie Bly's to 10 days in a madhouse. There's a brilliant investigative reporter in Ghana who basically repeated Nellie Bly's investigation going into the worst mental health facility in, in Ghana with a like a button camera and documenting just unbelievable conditions. And the only difference was this guy had a miniature camera today, but the methodology really hadn't changed. Investigative journalism sometimes been called the, the journalism of outrage. And, you know, while we don't want to be uh, emotional, we want to, you know, have a clinical approach, it's understandable because people feel passionate about this stuff. It's about righting wrongs. It, it's about looking at the world's problems and how to make them better. We, we have very few troops in the field fighting this war. And, and there's so much corruption. There's so much abuse of power. Uh, there's so much lack of accountability uh, at, at a time when the, the, the press is being hollowed out at, at an alarming rate. Uh, one of the, the few bright spots has been you know, we're managing to increase the ranks of people who practice quality investigative journalism. And, and that's that's been really exciting. Yeah. Happening before the pandemic, then the pandemic is shrinking us even more. Corporate entities have bought up so much media and sold them off for parts. And in that context, how how are you? I, I wasn't expecting this interview to go here, but I'm curious. How are you pulling in the funding to support this? And what do you see moving forward as sort of uh, a way to sustain, you know, the uh, the the investigative journalism struggle or the struggle for accountability. It's a great question. Where we are spending uh, more and more time on issues of what we call sustainability. Well, what are the survival strategies to keep alive accountability journalism? We're still in dire straits. Make no mistake. But there's there's terrific work being done. Unlike even 10, 15 years ago. There is a world-class muckraking going on all over the world. And, and even the Chinese can't contain it. Uh, there was great stuff done on, on Wuhan. And, and you know there were journalists uh, interviewing uh, deliveries of funeral urns to facilities to document how many deaths were really happening. You know, I mean, that's how enterprising people are being today. You know, we're under assault on multiple levels. Obviously, the financial model has changed. Uh, there's a political backlash against not just independent media, but uh, human rights and democracy all over the world. And, and independent media is one of the first things these, these autocrats and oligarchs go after. So just at a time when we're, we're getting more and more people trained and we're getting them uh, skilled with how to how to use use data and, and connect with each other across borders. 
that this backlash has hit. So we've got our backs to the wall, even in places that where we thought we were relatively secure, like the United States. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, the you know, I, yeah. What does the fact that the U.S. has shifted in its uh, power mentality in over the past few years, what does that do to investigative journalists in other parts of the world? I mean, was there any sort of, well, we got to toe the line a little bit and now we're free to kind of attack the journalists or? Boy, it, it, it's, it's, there's a long and complicated answer. There's a field that has arisen since the Cold War and ended called media development. Like there's foreign assistance to develop agriculture and industry and civil society, you know, an independent judiciary and good law enforcement. Billions of dollars have gone from, from North America and Western Europe uh, to empower independent media around the world. Uh, increasingly, um, partly because of our efforts, uh, more is going to investigative journalism. The World Bank, USAID, uh, the European Union, all have recognized that investigative journalism is as fundamental a building block, that accountability journalism is as fundamental a building block to a healthy, just, and, and economically developed society as all these other facets, as having good agriculture and industrial policy and good schools and, and, and good cops, you need a watchdog press. That's helped. It's helped create uh, nonprofit investigative centers, NGOs with uh, watchdog uh, capability who, who are often staffed by former journalists cross-border networks that are, are doing God's work and in, in training and, and equipping journalists around the world. The UN has recognized this. UNESCO supports it. The biggest single donor of this is the United States government, believe it or not. It's, it's USAID. Third is the State Department. And it's actually one of the foreign policy things that the United States does well. And it's done real good around the world. Okay. Um, so I want to get to the the how. You mentioned earlier that uh, before GIJN brought people together, that most investigative journalists were working as lone wolves or in local markets with small investigative teams, if there was a team at all. And then you have people who desire to be journalists. So I'm thinking about my students, but I'm thinking about young journalists who may have a desire to go into this, but it feels big. It feels daunting. It feels like, how does one do this? So what is the how there? Like, how do you break down how an investigative journalist can do the work? And you mentioned that Wuhan example, I think is fantastic because it reminded me of Al Capone and tax evasion, right? It's like, it's like, oh, just check the, check the orders on urns. Like that's a good one. We did a roundup of like 12 techniques journalists were using when governments were lying about, about COVID-19 victims. Others were interviewing grave diggers who said business has tripled. Yeah. I don't know what the government's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then more sophisticated uh, techniques like uh, uh, the, the big American papers were looking at morbidity reports. The CDC had issued in previous years and comparing them and showing that, that the official uh, numbers were low. That gets to the point of talking to sources who aren't always the official sources because the CDC... Um, maybe not perfect, but historically we can kind of count on those numbers. And of course, the, then there became a question once the data moved to the HHS, at least in the U.S. context. But to get global, um, if you feel like you can't rely on your official sources, or even if you feel like you can, that idea of diversifying your sources to the extent that you're talking to 
you know, sources that are in other parts of the world, like grave diggers and those who handle the orders for urns and things like that. So talk a little bit about the importance of not always relying on the official word and, and how that and how that can help get out a story. You need a, a cop on the beat. You need a public watchdog because public officials don't always tell the truth. And, and particularly in societies that don't have guardrails for uh, accountability, this becomes even more important where government lying uh, becomes a way of life. And I think we've gotten a glimpse of, of what that's like during the Trump administration where, where uh, public utterances bear no resemblance to, to reality. Our colleagues overseas, you know, have looked at this and said, hey, well, welcome to the club. You know, we, we've lived like this in Eastern Europe, in, in China for, for decades now. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Dave Kaplan, Executive Director of the Global Investigative Journalism Network, or GIJN. Even in places like China and Vietnam, uh, where, you know, there's still Communist Party rule, there are people high up in the government who understand the need for independent media. There's a realization among any official with a public spirit in mind that you have to have an independent source of information that is checking whether your stock market is rigged, whether your businesses can play on an even playing field, uh, whether the medicine your citizens are taking at night is safe, whether the food you eat in the morning is poison, uh, whether the toys your kids play with are safe. People often make the mistake of thinking investigative reporting is about crime and corruption. That's often a factor, but the mere fact that there's there's criminal conduct doesn't mean it's, it's an investigative story. It could be about uh, schools and children and, and how women are treated in a society, persecution of minorities and dissidents. Again, for a, a society to be just and democratic and to develop for all of its citizens, you, you've got to have those, those independent and critical voices asking tough questions about, about accountability, uh, about whether power in that society is used in an accountable fashion. When you have people who have power in a given society, whether it's through you know, political or corporate or, or, or social means, are they using that power in a way that is accountable to the public. And, you know, the root of accountable is, is an account, having an accountant. It's like we're, we're, so we're, we're the ones who are trying to balance the books of power in, in society. If there's too much red, someone needs to blow the whistle. To play an existential devil's advocate, why? Why is that important? Why is it important to hold power to account? Why is it important to have a just society? Unjust societies fail. If we're going to continue to progress as a species, you know, you're asking an existential question. You know, I mean, it's it's good that 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 slavery was ended, that that women's suffrage came, that smallpox and polio were eradicated, uh, that that the civil rights movement happened. Uh, you know, if you take these things as, as as a given, you know, how do you get there? Well, there there has to be people who are exposing the the very serious problems that that underlie these social maladies. You know, we're, we're not the only solution, but to, to have an inquisitive watchdog media that asks these tough questions is the first step 
toward solving them. And obviously, you, you've got to have groups that will take up the call and push for reform, and, and the political process has to, you know, be not completely dis, dysfunctional. Uh, you know, and I think this goes back to your original question, you know, what, why do we do this? It's uh, because we want to leave the world a little better. And, and that we, we care about underdogs and people being exploited. You know, I, I'm a child of the 60s. I, I came out of the anti-war movement, caught the very end of it. And for me, when, when I started calling myself a journalist, it was a little corner of, of the world that I could change. It gave me just a little bit of influence so that I could investigate and call attention to issues far beyond what I ever you know, thought I could as a, uh, as a kid concerned about these issues. When you say that, the idea of holding people to account and making the world a better place, it's like speaking up. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some anecdotes around the world of investigative journalism. You've mentioned a couple, but investigative journalism that your organization has supported that you're really proud of or things that have stood out to you. Part of what we do is is bringing people together. We, we get these amazing stories. I'll point to, to two stories that we did that I, I think made a, a real difference. Well, one was the piece I mentioned about uh, different ways to document uh, the real death toll from COVID-19 when your government's lying about it. And we surveyed journalists all over the world, from China to the UK, and, and how they were, were, were doing that. We did another piece looking at some pretty advanced forensic analysis that the uh, New York Times and a handful of other uh, papers and groups have, have been doing, analyzing when security forces uh, open fire or attack protesters at public demonstrations. Uh, through audio and video analysis, there are some pretty effective ways to determine who shot the first shot and, and, and who attacked whom. It's amazing stuff. Both of those stories have been viewed thousands of times in 80 countries by journalists. That's GIJ and doing its job. It, it, it's providing the know-how on how to do this stuff and arming journalists so they've got state-of-the-art tools to do accountability reporting. That's exciting stuff. You know, you talked about your own draw. Um, what would you tell, what sort of sensibilities might students want to cultivate or hone um, if they want to do investigative journalism? We lost so much with the, the financial model and our thinning ranks. Some of it, certainly not all, but some of it is made up through the technology, the very technology that's, that's, that's uh, you know, uh, knocked us uh, on our asses is also helping us get back up. The cost of entry into the media space has never been lower. Anybody can open up a news site. One of the uh, U.S. groups, Lion, they're an association of local publishers, and they, they do a lot of cool startup stuff. They, they just put out a kit, a, a startup kit, for anybody to start their own online news organization. It's completely cool. You know, and then we've, we've taken the nonprofit model and, and sort of married an NGO structure with a journalism model. Quality journalism sites have the same distinction uh, or status as an environmental or human rights group, uh, that you should support that publicly through donations and grants. Schools have played a really important role. We have uh, centers for investigative journalism 
at almost all the major journalism schools or, or investigative reporting programs. This model is spread overseas as, as well. Cal teamed up with the New York Times this year to cover the pandemic. We've lost a lot of ground and we're, we're playing catch up, but I, I think people are they're experimenting with a lot of different models. And because it's, it's such a calling, we're not given up. You know, and, and at the same time, there's, there's been a kind of a, a metamorphosis in the nonprofit sector. NGOs that sort of had a watchdog function now are getting into investigations. Greenpeace internationally has like three investigative teams. Uh, Global Witness in London, is they're basically made up of former investigative journalists documenting kleptocracies and pilfered wealth. There's a bunch of hybrid groups that are doing amazing stuff with investigative tools. GIJN started uh, what we call a, a citizen investigative project. We have so many people from NGOs and citizens groups coming to learn how to, how to do this stuff that we, we created a whole guide. How do you find out who's polluting your neighborhood? Uh, how, how do you get a, a, an asset disclosure form from your local politician? Who owns the property in your community? People are asking these questions. We call them public interest investigators. The, the numbers of sort of hardcore full-time investigative journalists worldwide are, are only in the thousands. There's, there's not that many of us. But the number of journalists are in the hundreds of thousands. And they all, you know, they all use investigative skills to some extent. And you got book authors and documentary producers, freelancers. The next circle are these citizen journalists and NGO staff and good government types. There's a formidable army out there ready to use these kinds of skills to go after lack of accountability and lack of, uh, of transparency and abuses of power. That's pretty heartening. I was going to ask you about how do investigative journalists deal with misinformation. And you mentioned a second ago, we've lost ground. And I'm assuming what you meant was with our current government and with uh, the fact that the bad guys went global. But I'm wondering, if is there anything you want to add or say about misinformation and, and dealing with that as you try to put out this? Yeah, you, you really can't have a discussion like this without addressing the age of misinformation. It's become just an onslaught. I, I mean, I, th I think we, we woke up just a few years ago to find out we were in a war we didn't even know we were in and we were getting our asses kicked. Again, our, our colleagues overseas saw this early on in Eastern Europe with, you know, the, the Russians have been disinformation specialists for, for years. Dictators and kleptocrats have used this kind of really Orwellian attacks on, on the media and the public for years, and it's it's scary how effective this stuff has been. That that you can just keep repeating something, and and people start to to accept it as as truth. The lack of the ability to think critically among such vast amounts of uh, the, the population, uh, it, it makes what we do, I think, even more important. That that there need to be people who bear witness to history. And, and others who document that, that there, there is objective truth. And our job is uh, indeed writing that first rough draft of history and, and making it as, as accurate and, and fair and durable as, 
as, as possible. This is what civilization is built on. That's why this is a, a calling, you know. Journalism goes back to the to the first guys coming back from the hunt telling the story around around the fire. What if they're making that shit up? <laughs> yeah, the tribe's gonna starve <laughs> because they don't have accurate info about where the buffalo are, you know? So it's really important we get we get this right. But the, the technology has so transformed the environment we face. We're still trying to get our arms around it. And we're, we're you know, we're just uh, outgunned, we're outfinanced. Until recently, we've been outmaneuvered, but we're catching up. Thank you to my guest, Dave Kaplan, Executive Director of the Global Investigative Journalism Network, or GIJN. For more information, to find resources, or to check out the amazing stories from brave and enterprising investigative journalists around the world, go to GIJN.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.